I want to invite you to open your Bibles to Psalm 91 as we continue our series, Praying with God's People, an exploration of not all 150 uh, psalms, but uh, a number of them over the coming weeks. This morning we turn to Psalm 91. When I was probably 11 or 12, I was a newspaper boy in southern Ontario, St. Catharines, delivering, delivering the St. Catharines Standard. It was a Monday to Saturday newspaper, and over the course of my childhood, I actually had a number of routes. My older brother had the route right immediately around our house. Eventually, I got that one, but initially, he had it, and so I had to go a little further away. And so my, my first route that was my own was just about a block away in another neighboring neighborhood on Ted Street. And I remember one particular day delivering a newspaper to one particular customer. He, he was a single father of two teenage boys. Again, I was 11 or 12. His boys were, uh, were much older than me. The youngest was probably 16 or 17. And I remember one day I had just dropped the paper off at the front door and I had turned around and I was about to step off the porch when the, the screen door burst open behind me and the youngest of those two teenage boys burst out of the house and he grabbed me and pulled me, spun me around backwards, held me against his chest and pulled out this huge hunting knife and held it to my throat. I remember him threatening me, not only physically, but growling in my ear about what he would do if I didn't cooperate with him. I don't know that I've ever experienced physical danger like that ever since. After a few seconds, he shoved me away, and I left very quickly, shaking with fear. For whatever reason, I never shared that with anyone, didn't share it with my parents. But I can tell you this, I was profoundly alert to the dangers every subsequent time when I went to deliver the paper at that home. I'm very aware of the danger I faced. I was alert and frightened. Derek Kidner writes this about Psalm 91. He says, this is a psalm of danger. It may strike you as odd that I named this sermon a prayer of security if it, in fact, is a psalm of danger, but you will see that that is very fitting. As we turn our attention to this psalm, this prayer, we will discover here God's promise of security for those who trust in Him. I'm going to read, if you have your Bibles, I invite you to follow along as I read Psalm 91, 1 to 16. Whoever dwells in the shelter of the Most High will rest in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say of the Lord, He is my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. Surely He will save you from the fowler's snare and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with His feathers and under His wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness will be your shield and rampart. You will not fear the terror of night, nor the arrow that flies by day, nor the pestilence that stalks in the darkness, nor the plague that destroys at midday. A thousand may fall at your side, ten thousand at your right hand, but it will not come near you. You will only observe with your eyes and see the punishment of the wicked. 
If you say, the Lord is my refuge, and you make the most high your dwelling, no harm will overtake you, no disaster will come near your tent, for he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. You will tread on the lion and the cobra. You will trample the great lion and the serpent. Because he loves me, says the Lord, I will rescue him. I will protect him, for he acknowledges my name. He will call on me, and I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will deliver him and honor him. With long life, I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. I want to explore this psalm together with you by asking four questions this morning. Question number one, how is God described? Question number two, what are we promised? Question number three, where can we go wrong? And question four, to whom does this point us to? How is God described? What are we promised? Where can we go wrong? And who does this point us to? So question number one, how is God described? I want to draw your attention first to the opening verses of this prayer, uh, the, the, the names, the titles that are given, that are used for God in these opening verses. There are four. The Most High, the Almighty, the Lord, and my God. The first speaks of the greatness of God, that none surpass Him. He is the Most High. That is, God has no rival. The gods of the nations are in fact not gods at all. God alone is God. He is the most high. He is over all. Think of the book of Revelation. His throne is over every other throne. He is the most high. Second, the title is similar. He is the almighty. Here a spotlight is shone on, on the power of God, the might of God. He is the almighty one. He can do all that he wills to do. There are none that can stop him. He faces no limitations. His power is beyond measure. The third and fourth titles are covenant language. He is the Lord, Yahweh. He is the covenant-making God of Israel. He is faithful to them in relationship with them. And fourth, he is my God, the psalmist says, speaks of intimate relationship with him. The God, as we encounter in this prayer, he is the most high, the almighty, the Lord, Yahweh, and he is my God. Here our minds are moved to think of the power and the might of God, unsurpassed, and of the sense of great intimacy and relational commitment between God and the psalmist, between the, God and those to whom the psalmist, with whom this psalmist shares this prayer. But aside from the divine titles that we encounter, the names for God, the, the titles used, there are various metaphors that are used to speak of God as well. Uh, metaphors of protection. It's how Tremper Longman describes it. Uh, like the divine titles, there are four. God is said to be a shelter. God is said to provide shade. That is, we, we are in his shadow. He provides shade to protect. God is my refuge. God is my fortress. These latter two metaphors for, certainly are uh, military metaphors, potentially pointing us to the original context of this prayer. Several more images are employed in verse 4. The first is that of the protection offered by a bird to its offspring. I, I'll return to that in a moment. But the last one is, again, a military metaphor, and a military image. His faithfulness will be your shield and rampart. Shield, clearly this image of, of protection, something being in front of you to take the hits, to protect you. And a rampart or stronghold was a term used 
of a, a military base. It's used in the, by the Qumran community of Masada, a famous fortress built on top of a, 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 a mesa, a, a flat top ridge. I mean, Masada has steep cliffs, one side 1,300 feet up of a cliff, this protected space. Back to the imagery of a bird. We read in verse 4, God will cover you with his feathers, and under his wings you will find refuge. The vast majority of imagery for God in Scripture is uh, what we would call masculine. God is the king. God is a warrior. God is father. God has revealed himself as father. But here we encounter this language that is of a, of a bird, a mother bird, protecting her offspring under her wings. A mother bird sheltering her young with wings, sheltering them from rain, sheltering them from heat, sheltering them from predators. It is an image of incredible tenderness and love. It's an image, actually, that we encounter. This image of God as a bird with his wings protecting is an image we encounter frequently in, in the book of Ruth. As Boaz speaks to Ruth, he says this, May the Lord repay you for what you've done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Psalm 36, 7, we read, How priceless is your unfailing love, O God. People take refuge in the shadow of your wings. Psalm 57, 1, Have mercy on me, my God. Have mercy on me, for in you I take refuge. I will take refuge in the shadow of your wings until the disaster has passed. Psalm 61, 4, I long to dwell in your tent forever and take refuge in the shelter of your wings. Over and over and over again, we encounter this language of of sheltering under wings. Verse 4 of this psalm, psalmist says, He will cover you with his feathers, and under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness will be your shield and rampart. Derek Kidner writes this about God's care. It provides the warm protectiveness of a parent bird with the hard, unyielding strength of armor. Such is the language that we encounter in these opening verses of Psalm 91 of this prayer. God is the Most High without rival. God is the Almighty One. He has power beyond measure. God is Yahweh, the covenant God of Israel. He is my God, intimately related, in relationship with, and He is a shelter. He is a shade. He is a shield. He is a fortress. He is a refuge. And he is like a mother bird under whose wings we find protection. Leads us to our second question. What are we promised? All of these titles, these names of God, the images and metaphors employed to speak of God, speak to protection, uh, to security, to safety. And in the middle part of this psalm, uh, what is implied in those titles and in those metaphors is fleshed out in some very concrete ways. It would appear from a straightforward uh, reading of this psalm that if we trust God, God will protect us. And the description that we read is, is, is very sweeping. Verse 3 says, Surely he will save you from the fowler's snare. That is, he will save you from uh, the intrigues of your enemies, from human traps. We read on, and from the deadly pestilence, that is from disease. So God will protect us from other people who, who plan our demise. God will protect us from disease, 
Read, we read on in verse 4, which says that we will not have to fear perils that come at night or during the day. We are, will be safe in darkness and in the light, including from flying arrows. Uh, many of the dangers described here are unseen, like, like disease. We don't see disease. We don't see uh, a virus like COVID. Like an arrow, we don't see it. Uh, Wolkie and Houston, in their commentary, write this about the danger of arrows. In contrast to most other weapons, the arrow strikes from afar. It is, they say, long-range, lightning-quick, and unseen, making the bow and arrow a weapon to be feared. I was introduced a little while ago, I don't know, a month ago or so, by my youngest son to a video game that he has been playing called Fortnite. I don't know, some of you are familiar with that, maybe some of you kids. For those unfamiliar with it, Fortnite is basically a game where you parachute in on this island with a hundred other people online, so there's other people, and you, you go around and explore this island looking for things like band-aids and med kits and guns. I know this is an MB church, but... And then you run around in theory and you try and uh, tag other people so you're the last one standing. Now, I, I, I wasn't really good at this, but I thought it was interesting, so I sat down with him once and he showed me... And, and it was actually fun to explore and to find stuff. Uh, but then the problem was every once in a while I'd run into other players who would want to shoot me. And as soon as I would see them, my thumbs would just kind of go involuntarily. Brendan called it button mashing. And I would be looking the wrong way and firing my gun in all kinds of different ways other than that person. And, and I'm sure they, they thought, who is this? Probably someone's dad. And I would be done, the game would be over. But uh, there would be occasions where I would be exploring somewhere all by myself, looking for things and getting, you know, loaded up with stuff. And, and then suddenly, all of a sudden, I'd be dead. And I'm like, Brennan, what happened? And he'd say, someone headshotted you with an arrow. And I'm like, I didn't even know someone was there. This, this comes from a long ways away. You don't, don't even see it coming. That's what's being described here. You will be protected from those unseen dangers, like arrows. Those things you don't even see coming, this picture of safety, the promises here are very sweeping. It, it just seems like this promise that, that there will be no violence that will touch you, no disease will touch you. Verse 10 says, no harm will overtake you, no disaster will come near your tent. It, it seems as we read this that if you trust God, uh, you will not even stub your toe. Look with me. It says, you will not strike your foot against a stone. God will send his angels so you don't even stub your toe. It, it seems that the promises are of invulnerability, of invincibility. Just trust God. And if you do, God will protect you. He will keep you from all these things. There is, of course, a glaring problem that we encounter at this point. William Shakespeare wrote... Each new morn, new widows howl, new orphans cry. If you have lived long enough, you know that life involves suffering, that life includes pain. We do suffer. We suffer violence. We suffer disease. We suffer harm. We suffer disasters. We do strike our feet against stones. Stubbed toes happen. I can testify to that. So what are we to do with these promises? What do, how are we to read this psalm? How are we to understand it? And that leads us to the third question that I want us to ask this morning. Where can we go wrong as we read this psalm? 
If this psalm is contending that no harm will come to those who have a proper relationship with God, those who trust in God, if that is true, and then subsequently if we suffer, then it would seem to suggest that we don't have a proper relationship with God, which quite honestly piles on a boatload of guilt, does it not? Oh, I'm sick because I must not trust God right. Oh, I'm suffering in this way because I must not trust God right. Or might there be another problem? Might there be a problem with how we're reading this psalm? Might we be reading it wrongly? There are a number of reasons that we should pause and carefully consider how we may be misreading this text. One reason provided by Tim Keller is, is simply this, that, that we desperately want it to mean that. We, we want it to mean that, that if we live right with God, we can have a safe life where nothing goes wrong, where we get all the things that we want, that, that we get our best life now. That's what we want, and, and Tim Keller makes the point, we're not objective, so if that's what we desperately, desperately want, that's probably a good reason to go, hang on, maybe, maybe I'm not getting this right. That's one reason. A second reason arises from a principle that I've highlighted before, namely that we need to interpret Scripture in light of Scripture. That is, we must not take any particular biblical text in isolation from the rest of Scripture. An example I've shared with you before, I remember when I was in high school hearing of a, a teacher, a Christian teacher, saying, justifying sleeping around saying, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Shocking, I know, but, but we can twist Scripture, and so we can't ever take one Scripture, excise it from the whole of the Bible, and, and read it alone. We need to read Scripture in light of Scripture. And so if we do that here, what do we discover? Because this is one book with one divine author, and so we need to read it as such. Think with me for a moment of the book that precedes the book of Psalms, the book of Job. Job tells the account of Job, a servant of God, a man who was said to be righteous, who suffers terribly. Job suffers economic loss. He suffers the tragic death of all of his children. He suffers physical suffering, painful boils. And then three friends gather around him. They sit silently for a bit. And then they start talking to him and saying, saying, Job, God doesn't punish the righteous. God doesn't bring suffering on the righteous. Clearly, there's something wrong in your life, Job. Clearly, if you were right with God, you would not be suffering like this. That's their argument, chapter after chapter after chapter. But if you've read the book of Job, you know you get to, we get to the end, and there God shows up, and God confronts Job's three friends with these words. You have not spoken truth about me. You've not spoken truth about me. You're wrong, friends. And so, with that in mind, we need to pause here and say, well, does the Bible, does Psalm 91 teach us that if we have a right relationship with God, we will not suffer? Certainly the book of Job would suggest that that can't be how we are to read it. There's a third reason that should give us pause, and, and this might might be a little shocking for you. 
But to read the psalm this way is to read it satanically. It is to read it how Satan wants us to read it. A bit jarring, but let me explain. The devil knows Psalm 91. The devil quotes Psalm 91 in the story of Jesus' temptations. Satan wants to derail Jesus. He wants to derail uh, the mission that he is on. And so the devil quotes Psalm 91 to Jesus in Luke 4. We, we read this. He says to Jesus, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here. He had brought Jesus up to a pin, the pinnacle of the temple. And he says, for it is written, quoting Psalm 91, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against the stone. Jesus. Jesus, just jump. Make this spectacular entrance because God has said that you're going to come to no harm. Jump. If God loves you, he won't let you suffer. So jump. If God is with you, then, then you won't suffer. So jump. Tim Keller says, if the devil can get a Christian to believe that God won't let any really bad things happen to you, then when bad things happen, you will pull back from God. I want to read that again. If the devil can get a Christian to believe that God won't let any really bad things happen to you, then when bad things happen, you will pull back from God. You will get angry. You will get bitter. You will pull away. You will not draw close. You will not trust him because you thought that he would protect you from every bad thing and he clearly hasn't. I've served for a long time in this role and I can't too often I've seen this unfold in the lives of believers who think that because I put my faith in Jesus life will go well and some tragedy comes and they're they're so devastated and rather than than seeking comfort in God they pull away in anger and in bitterness and how could God do this if the devil can get a christian to believe that God won't let any really bad things happen to you then when bad things happen you will pull back from God Scholar James May writes this about Psalm 91. This psalm must always be read and understood in light of that encounter, the encounter of Christ with the devil. There is a way that Satan wants us to read this text. as a blanket promise that if we are in Christ, we will not suffer. But when we step back from this psalm and consider it in the context of the larger biblical story, we are led to read it rightly. Remember with me the story of Joseph. In Genesis 50, verse 20, Joseph speaking to his brothers. Their father has passed away, and his brothers now, guilty of selling him into slavery, they, they're worried that Joseph is now going to retaliate. And Joseph says to them, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done. You intended it to harm me, but God used it for good. Think of the story of Joseph. His father Jacob poisoned the family by treating Joseph as a favorite, filling 
the hearts of his other sons, Joseph's brothers, with bitterness and anger and a sense of rejection. Joseph grew up as a spoiled brat, arrogant, and at best insensitive, if not downright foolish, boasting before his brothers. His brothers, filled with anger, wanted to kill him, end up selling him into slavery. He, he goes to Egypt where he is sold as a slave, and he does okay after a little while, but then he's falsely accused, and he ends up in prison probably for decades, certainly for years. Think about that. Years sitting in a prison cell. And eventually, he rises to a place of power, and God uses him, his leadership, to save many people, Egyptians and other nations, from a great famine. And God ends up reconciling Joseph with his brothers, with his family, bringing healing to this dysfunctional, poisoned family. And so Joseph recognizes this and he says, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done. Romans 8.28 says that, and we know that all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Please, let's not misread that. It doesn't say bad things are really good things. You just don't see it. No, bad things are bad things. Bad things are painful things. There's nothing good about them. But, but God takes those bad things. He takes what was intended to harm us. And he works all things together for good for those who love him. Whether we see it like Joseph did or not. And many times we will not. We will not see how God uses the pain and the suffering and the hard things we go through. We will not see how God uses those somehow for good. But that's what scriptures claim. That God works all things together for the good of those who love him. The biblical story is not a promise of pain-free, suffering-free, trouble-free life. In an article I read this week entitled Five Christian Clichés That Need to Die, one of the clichés that was identified as one that needs to be put to death was the, the cliché, you're never more safe than when you're in God's will. Author Matt Smethurst goes on and he, he draws readers' attention to what Jesus says in Luke 21. Jesus is speaking to his disciples. And, and he says this to them. You will be betrayed even by parents, brothers and sisters, relatives and friends. They will put some of you to death. Everyone will hate you because of me. Not a hair of your head will perish. You'll be betrayed. Some of you will be killed. Everybody's going to hate you. You'll be entirely safe. Really? Justin Martyr, a second century church father, said this, they can kill us, but they cannot harm us. They can kill us, but they cannot harm us. He saw something that we need to see, that we can be betrayed, hated, killed, but not a hair on our head will perish. We will be protected, secure, and safe, sheltered under the wings of God Almighty. I want to turn to our fourth question. Who does this point to? Look with me at verse 15 for a moment. 
There we read, I will be with him in trouble. That's a clue for us. We are promised his presence. We are promised that God will be with us in trouble. That the protection he gives will come from him being with us. And do we see, do you recognize where we see God's presence with us most clearly? In the incarnation. When, when God, the mighty one, the most high, puts on flesh. And came into this world and made his dwelling among us. We see this in the incarnation of Christ. And not only did Jesus come to be with us, he came to protect us. Do you remember the time when Jesus was approaching the end of his life? He knew that he was going to Jerusalem where he would lay down his life on a cross. And Jesus is on a colt and he's riding up the Mount of Olives. And as he crests the Mount of Olives, and as he gazes across the Kidron Valley, he sees the city of Jerusalem and his heart breaks. And he cries out, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, if only, if only you knew what I came to do. You who killed the prophets and stoned those sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were not willing. Jesus longs to gather his people under his wings, this imagery again of being sheltered by the wings of God under the feathers of his wings. Oh, Jesus says, how I longed to gather you, how I longed to protect you, how I longed to put my wings over you, but you were not willing. Jesus came to be present with us in trouble. Jesus came to protect us from trouble, to protect us by putting his wings over us, by being a substitute for us. Do you see that? Think again of the mother bird sheltering her little ones beneath her wings. What is she doing? She's being a substitute for them. She's sheltering them from the rain. She's sheltering them from the heat. She's sheltering them from predators. How does she do that? By, by, by putting herself in the place where she gets wet, where she takes the heat, where she is attacked. Jesus cries out over Jerusalem, how often I have longed to gather you. Together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. Jesus came to be present with us in our suffering. Jesus came to wrap his wings over us, to protect us, to shelter us. On the cross, Jesus became our substitute. Taking the heat that we deserved. Taking the judgment that you and I deserve because of our sin, because of our rebellion. Jesus came and, and stepped in the way. He was our shield he was our fortress, and he bore the wrath that we deserve. He took our place to protect us, to make us safe and secure. He took it all out of love for us. Through faith in Christ, through faith in Christ, we dwell in the shelter of the Most High. We rest in the shadow of the Almighty, Christ is our refuge. Christ is our fortress, our shield, our rampart. He is the one under whose wings we find refuge. 
If you're with us this morning and you've never put your faith in Jesus, I want to I make it clear to you that, that coming to Christ is no promise, no guarantee that you will not suffer in this world. But it is a promise of protection. It is a promise that he will step in for you, that he will be your substitute, that he will cover you with his wings, that he will bear the, the punishment God's just punishment for your sin, that he will drink the last dregs of the cup of God's wrath and that you will be forgiven, that you will be clothed with his righteousness, that you will be redeemed and saved and secure, that you, will, you can have peace no matter what you encounter in this life because you will be his. And so if you've never made that commitment, if you've never surrendered to Jesus, I urge you even today to do it, to cry out on the one who longs to save you, who longs to cover you with his wings, and Jesus will forgive you, and he will clothe you with his perfection, and he will step in and shelter you, protect you. For those who are believers in Christ, we need to be reminded of this, that Christ makes us secure. That Christ gives us safety. It's not a security and a safety that, that means we will not suffer in this world. But by trusting in him, our hearts can be will, filled with peace no matter what we face. And I want to warn us that we, we must not read this text wrongly because then when you suffer, when you suffer, it will cause you to pull away from God rather than to run to God and say, you are my refuge. I take shelter under your wings. We, we need to be reminded that Christ has done what we needed, that we are, through Christ, through faith in Christ, we are safe, we are protected, we are secure. And like Justin Martyr said, they can kill us, but they cannot harm us. Over the centuries, this psalm has been a source of great comfort to many of God's people. Not because of some naive expectation that there will be no suffering. No, it has comforted them in the midst of sickness, in the midst of trouble, in the midst of suffering. Tim Keller says that this psalm teaches us how to have peace in a dangerous world. That, that we can rest in the fact that God Almighty, the Most High, my God, the Lord, the covenant-making God, the one who is our refuge, our fortress, that he has made us secure, that we are protected, that we are secure. I love Justin Martyr's words. They can kill us, but they cannot harm us. My hope and my prayer is that we would find great confidence in the fact that God is with us, that in Christ we have been sheltered, that in Christ we are utterly secure, invincible, until he comes. I want to close reading verse 2. May this be the prayer of our hearts. I will say of the Lord, he is my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I will trust. Amen.